Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hey, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are very excited to be joined by Rob Mons. He is the CEO of Good Kid Productions, and he made a documentary that we want all of our listeners to really go out and see uh, as soon as possible. Actually, you don't even need to go out. You can just yeah. watch it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> it's called The Broken Boys of Kenosha, Jacob Blake, Kyle Rittenhouse, and the Lies We Still Live. So welcome, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, a nice little light topic just for people's uh, when they're, you know, doing the laundry or commuting in. Just a, a, a nice little light topic for everybody. Thank no, you. No, it's important stuff. Important stuff. Well, yeah. they're used to that with us anyway. Um, yeah, we 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 tackle, you know, child abuse and all sorts of other I know, I know. That's I, I want to be the kind of person that listens to a podcast about these things, but then way too much of my listening hours are devoted to things like fantasy football podcasts. And like, there's a person I want to be, and then there's a person I actually am when I actually have my 30-minute commute in front of me. <laughs> well, the person you actually are did make this movie. So I wanted to just start by asking you... Uh, how you got here what what was the what was the thing about the story of jacob blake and what happened in kenosha afterwards that made you think you know this had been everywhere all over the news um what made you think that there was something else to look at here and can you talk a little bit about yeah. what you found uh when you were making this documentary well i mean honestly in the modern media environment going back and dissecting something that happened over two years ago is itself like radically countercultural, right? Because of the rate of metabolism of media, like a viral news story, if it's lucky, lasts 36 hours and then everybody moves on, right? Like if you ask people, what was the top trending news item on Twitter two weeks ago? Would anybody remember? Does anybody know? It's like, we just digest the stuff. We consume it on our phones while we're waiting for Starbucks hopefully gives us a little ounce of partisan pleasure and then we move on to the next outrage, right? That's just how everything gets processed. Yep. yep. And Kenosha in the summer of 2020 um, had this rare distinction of being this kind of bedroom community that birthed two mega viral news items kind of in the midst of COVID, lockdown, racial justice, you know, racial awakening. Those, those broader macroeconomic, like macro cultural political factors created these two viral incidences in a matter of just 72 hours. And, you know, obviously people, if they watch the doc, can learn about the, the particulars. But one of them is the shooting of an unarmed black man by the name of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. And then 72 hours later, that is when Kyle Rittenhouse comes to Kenosha to defend a car lot against the mostly peaceful protesters that descended on Kenosha after Jacob Blake was shot, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can get By the way, everything that you just said is was part of the original narrative, right? You said an unarmed black man. You said peaceful protesters, right? So you're you're actually repeating some of the things that were just accepted what? conventional. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're putting, we're putting air quotes in the podcast. I know that doesn't. I know well, the words at the beginning stages of the podcast. We'll break through the simulation, Ian, by um, the 18 minute mark. But now I just <laughs> I want to ease people into it. And then we destroy and we break the simulation. OK, 18 yeah. minute mark. Yes. Okay. But I think it's, I thought it was useful to go back into it because it's an ex excellent case study of foundational systematic corruption of, I guess you'd say, the modern media environment. 
and a corruption and a distortion that has a thoroughly bipartisan flavor. Obviously, like the large established corporate media institutions are uniformly left and are increasingly kind of, I think, co-opted by woke extremism. But there's some similar dynamics on the right and sort of the right's counterbalancing media operations. And that when these these viral incidences happen happen in Kenosha, the the respective sides do what they always do. And they come in and they kind of shove these incidences into these neat little prepackaged partisan narratives. They feed them to their audience. Everybody gets clicks and advertising revenue and a sense of moral superiority on social media. And then everybody's just is done with it, right? It's like Kenosha has served its purpose for people. What's the next outrage? What's the next outrage? And it's like, yo, hold up. What if you just like found out what really happened? Like that's the radical move. Like what actually happened as opposed to these neat, you know, you know, packaged pre-partisan narratives. And it, and it turns out when we process news items like this, we end up missing extraordinarily morally urgent issues that actually do matter for the future of the country. So, Rob, actually, given the fact that it's been two and a half years, it may be that not all of our listeners even remember who Jacob Blake is. Yeah. So can you just spend like a minute, just just set up the scene, like what happened, just to remind everyone uh, yeah. so, so that they, they can actually remember, oh, wait, wasn't that the guy that was shot seven times in the back? Right. So I think it was maybe four to six weeks after George Floyd. And it was clear that the nation was primed to want to find another incident like that. And then it emerges, as it always does, on like a 16-second video that's uploaded to Facebook. It it what what appears to be a unarmed black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, walking away from a police officer, opening the door to his car and trying to get in, and then being shot again, air quotes for the podcast listeners in the back seven times by a racist, vicious white police officer. And in a matter of just like 30 minutes, an hour, that clip is everywhere. It's everywhere. It goes super, super viral. And I mean, most importantly, to remind your listeners, it ends up having its most extreme consequences in professional athletics, oddly enough, because one of the first the the um the NBA is hosting the playoffs right right in the middle of that viral incident and the t- team from Minnesota decides to boycott their playoff game in protest of Jacob Blake's shooting which then precipitates a bunch of other boycotts both in the NBA and other professional sports so it kind of gives it even more viral juice when all these prominent professional athletes are kind of joining in and lockstep in solidarity for with Jacob right. Blake and this, you know, this this horrible thing that had happened to him. Right. LeBron James being one. LeBron James from his $20 million Brentwood mansion, uh, uh monologuing about the grotesque systemic racism of the Kenosha Police Department. Yeah. Yeah. So you went and watched all these videos. What what did you find actually happened? So yeah, we can go into it as much as you guys want to. Part of me wants to save a little bit of it for people to see when they actually watch the doc. I mean, I'm going to, you know, okay. we'll tease it, but there's, uh, there, well, there's, there, okay. well, there's a sec, I, I actually want to make, I'm not sure this is going to be interesting to you, but there, there was the particularly Kenosha. We obviously missed something. Let's go back. But just generally, hopefully this is not boring at our company. 
we take a lot of inspiration from journalists that are very good at like narrative-based deconstructions of events or our news items that people think they understand, right? Guys like Michael Lewis or Malcolm Gladwell, we draw a lot of inspiration from their the craftsmanship of their journalism, which is often defined by taking something that you thought you understood and then kind of in it in a story-based way, breaking it apart and showing you how you actually missed what mattered about that that news right. item. And that was also what was exciting about this project is because we could show you that it's not about what you were fed. It's not about race. And in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, it's not about gun rights. It's about something deeper. And the deeper thing is this issue, this epidemic of fatherlessness in America, where one out of every three boys grows up dad deprived, which essentially means little to no contact with their father, which is the highest rate in the world. We're tied with the United Kingdom for that rate, right? And and cognitive science has caught up with kind of old-fashioned common sense wisdom that particularly on boys, having a fatherless childhood has profound neurological, psychological, emotional, and spiritual effects. It does. And what you were actually witnessing in Kenosha is the spirit is is the wreckage wrought by this phenomenon that has until very recently essentially gone unremarked upon. Yeah. Can you tell us? I I know you also don't want to give away too much for the documentary, but can you tell us a little bit about the backgrounds of that you discovered uh, with Jacob Blake and Kyle Rittenhouse? Just because I think you know the the fatherlessness is I just it's just doesn't make the news and. Um, and what you discovered about both their backgrounds, I mean, what's, what's striking in the documentary is how much these two have in common in in a way and um, and how they are both, uh, you know, victims, not in the sense that we talk about them being victims like of gun rights or police violence or um, but but victims of this fatherless culture. Exactly. Well, also, well, let's tease it like this. There's actually four main characters in this and we found all four of them share sure this yeah. generational trauma. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about two of them. And let, may, let maybe the audience can be like, well, who are the other two, bro? Like, you'll find out. You'll find out at <laughs> like minute 27. And hopefully your mind melts because you're like, oh my Jesus Christ, I didn't know this was coming. Um, yeah, I mean, is it for, for Jacob Blake, his dad, by the time Jacob Blake is born, his father has already impregnated a different woman and lives 700 miles away, right? Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, they had kind of sporadic contact with each other. And the thing that really drove me up the walls is that after Jacob Blake gets shot, his dad decides that he wants to be a civil rights influencer and kind of coast off of his son's trauma and and tragedy in order to boost his own like Instagram visibility. And you're like, bro, you were not there when this kid was four years old when he needed you. And now that he's laid up in a hospital, you've decided that you're going to relocate to Kenosha. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, bro. And it was really, Kyle- it was one of the most outrageous parts of this, of yeah. your documentary. I mean, I just, I, I paused yeah. it and just wanted to walk around the room banging. Th- I mean, it, it, it's really outrageous. The chutzpah. I, right. Simultaneously chutzpah. angry and also wanted to cry. Just knowing how deep his lack of presence really was. And then to feign that suddenly he's the responsible dad, you know? It's like, come on, man. And But, but he got away with it. I mean, he got away with it. His his star has faded since, but you know, he no one no one called him on it. 
I mean, the very first interview that he does, I think it's with the Washington Post. And I think it's within a matter of hours of the Jacob Blake shooting. And the the journalist notes at the very end of the story that the interview took place while Jacob Blake's dad was in a car driving to Kenosha. So even then you get this, we're like, wait a minute. Why is he driving to Kenosha? He doesn't live near Jacob Blake. Like he doesn't live anywhere near him. And it, and, and you just, it kind of unravels that he basically was never there. And the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, it's, um, yeah, his dad's a, an abusive alcoholic who divorces his mom when I think Kyle is four. And the thing we wanted to, I like Kyle obviously manifested the the existential aimlessness of fatherlessness differently than Jacob Blake did. And, and of course, are things that are even admirable about Kyle's ambition to protect private property when Wisconsin authorities are allowing Black Lives Matter activists to incinerate um, tens of millions of dollars of businesses. But what we try to talk about in the, in the doc is one of the essential features of a father, particularly... And there's science to back this up, particularly during adolescence, male adolescence, is to try to take like testosterone fueled um, energy of a, of a young male brain and point it in a productive direction. Yeah. And productive also includes like pr- doing things with that energy that's not going to get you killed. <laughs> right? Yeah. right. You know, right? right. And like the dad who has a certain amount of wisdom who went through the same testosterone cyclone could be like, Yo, I know what you're feeling at 15, but that thing you're about to do, you're going to break a leg or worse, right? That's kind of, it, it naturally falls to dads. And when you don't have that, you have this kind of naive male adolescent energy. If it's not directed in productive ways, it can lead to complete disaster. I mean, it's a very powerful primordial force, but it needs to be molded and shaped and directed. And Do you and, remember and, and one of these? That. There was one of, it was a viral video. I can't remember how many years ago um of this i it was a, it was like a black mother who found that her teenage boy was doing something wrong and i can't remember in what context whether it was protesting or but he was he was just he was behaving terribly and there's a video of him like dragging him i mean the kid is already bigger than she is but she's trying to drag him away from this and you watch this video and other people commented on this and they just you know they oh good for her go way to go lady and but you're just thinking this this is a role that really would be better served by a father and that it would have a lot more impact if there was a man who you respected, who was bigger than you, who was doing this yeah. instead of your mother, who's like a foot shorter. And she's just screaming because she feels like you are out of control. Yeah. I mean, Rob, the our podcast is called Are You Kidding Me? Right. Because we tr- usually try to focus on policies or other interventions where people have this mindset that this intervention is really good for kids. And then it turns out it's actually not. So this narrative of unarmed black men and being shot by the police, as you said, there are people that profit from it. I mean, the president, you have the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States in your video, rehearsing the talking points because somehow it served their particular agenda. And as you say, no one has ever now gone back. So who does this you know to correct to correct the you know other than you? So who does this narrative serve that you discovered? 
I mean, what, Patrice Calores, one of the Black Lives Matter founders, how much is her Topanga Canyon mansion worth? Isn't it like six million bucks? <laughs> I've heard oh, that she's become kidding? like a cooking influencer, uh, shooting 4K videos out of her kitchen. And she seems to be doing okay. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I don't... Uh... Yeah, I think I think it's I mean, it's like coastal media elites who just do not give a shit. I, I have to say, um, when I went back and I was talking to people and again, for people that are outside of Kenosha, this is way old news. But I would just, you know, strike up a conversation with a police officer here, someone at the coffee shop. And the people of Kenosha, Wisconsin, were like desperate to talk about this with me. It's very raw and very new for them because they everybody uniformly, whatever their political affiliations feels like what what happened represented like catastrophic media malpractice. They still don't feel like anybody actually wanted to hear their story, mm. right? It's like major corporate media wanted to descend, profit off of this outrage, package it appropriately for Good Morning America or whatever, and then move on and sell ads against it. It's like the actual people that are that are underlying these stories are completely irrelevant to those calculations of the whatever coastal media elites. I know that's a, that's a cliched phrase, but it's it had, too often. It's like an accurate description of the people that you are think that doing the this. The people yeah. in the community recognize this fatherlessness issue as something that was driving some of this people who knew either of these boys slash men um, understood that there was something there. I had, this is why I like my job. This is why I'm glad I didn't go to law school and just tried to do something crazy with my life. Because I had the most incredible conversation with the police officer when we were, I think the second day of shooting in Uptown Kenosha. So we went to Uptown Kenosha because that is the historic black business district of Kenosha, which also a log, uh, a big stretch of it is a completely empty crater <laughs> because all these businesses got incinerated by white Antifa members with, you know, art semiotics degrees from Wesleyan. And <laughs> two years later, it's still a wounded area. I mean, this is like a lot of commercial activity in Black Kenosha took place in this area. And there are craters where Black-owned businesses used to be, right? And we're just, my camera crew's just shooting stuff, right? And a police officer pulls up uh, maybe like 10 feet from me. And it's clear he's on a regular rounds. Like there's always just police presence in this area because of what happened. But he like starts looking at me. And he, I mean, you look at me like I obviously don't blend into the, <laughs> the little area. And I just strike up a conversation with him. And I ended up, I shot it surreptitiously on my iPhone, but um, he specifically asked that it not be included. And it also would have been a violation of like state law if I included it. But we, I asked, I just kind of ran this thesis by this guy about fatherlessness and he instantly was like that's exactly it and i asked him about his dad this guy happened to be a like a third or fourth generation wisconsinite who was black but had a dad and a mom that had he what he talked about what he said having home he said having home cooked meals every single night <clears throat> just how profound that was to give him a sense of order and you could even feel it on these guys like you could like this police officer had a steady anchoring to him. You could just it's on him like you could it's it's like it emanates off of him. This the 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 foundations that he was he lucked into for child in, in childhood. And he said something 
maybe similar to what Ian just said about how the lack of fathers goes unremarked in these black areas of Kenosha, but that what's really heartbreaking is to see it perpet- per- uh, perpetuated through the generations where he'd been on the force long enough that he'd been, he'd gone out to calls 20 years ago with an abandoned four-year-old boy whose dad is in an alcoholic rage and then come back to that same block 20 years later. And yeah. that boy is now the abusive alcoholic dad. Mm-hmm. And he's got his own abandoned three-year-old and just seeing this stuff go on and on and on indefinitely. And you're like, this is, this is never going to stop. This is never going to stop. No, it's but madness. This is, but this is the other, are you kidding me moment, Ian, I think, which is that, you know, it, the, there is a reason it goes unremarked upon. And the reason is we don't want to criticize this family structure and we don't want to appear judgmental and we don't want to say, oh, this family, you know, is this is a better way to raise kids than this is. And that is the the sort of well-intentioned, you know, oh, we're, we're just trying to help these people by not being too critical and not being too judgmental. And that is what is backfiring here. And those are the unintended consequences. Yeah, I don't know if you have a response to that, Rob. Oh, no. I feel like I've been talking like, yeah, no, I mean, that's I think that's exactly right, Naomi. I think it's exactly right that um, they uh, I think I think also people what we tried to do in the doc, though, I think part of the reason, you know, people that would never subscribe to an AEI podcast would be reluctant to talk about fatherlessness is because it has a racial valiance to it. And the assumption is like you might be saying something like racist or problematic to talk about the epidemic of fatherlessness, which obviously, Ian, I don't need to tell you, like, obviously, it's a, it's a big problem. But the fact that it's now become a thoroughly biracial phenomenon and like in that the, 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 the rate of white fatherlessness is still well below the rate of I, I think what it is, is in 1965. When uh, Patrick Moynihan. Uh, right, I mean, I, I know, you know, this is for the audience where he goes in and he's like. The, the, he's like whatever the rate was of fatherlessness he's like this is a 23.6 percent okay so you, you know right and, and like so sick about it he was like this is a catastrophe this is historic we are going to be paying the price for this for generations the white fatherlessness right now has caught up to that rate in 1960 it's it. now as surpassed bad it. as what he said it was surpassed it yeah yes yeah, nearly 30 percent and I, for me, for my purposes, at least, if you're trying to get this message out, trying to deracialize it and not make it feel like people are reading an editorial in the National Review and saying this is now a thoroughly biracial phenomenon and it needs to be seen as such. And hopefully that makes it easier for people to right. you know, face I it. Don't, but I also assume, I mean, I mean, I'd be interested, particularly in what you think, which is maybe people are reluctant to talk about it because there's very clearly no public policy solution to it that there's really nothing to be done. Like you can have Marco Rubio talking about child tax credits or whatever. And, a, but it, it has, it has a, it, it can only be fixed through culture and it can be, it has to be fixed through individual agency. And that's like an utterly unsatisfying answer. If you're about to go do a six minute cable news hit, that's what I would no, assume. No, no. What you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, I mean, I write about this a lot. I, I call this phenomena of fatherlessness, you say biracial, I call it the equal opportunity tsunami, right? Yeah. Because it's devastating white family. The only community that typically is not um, hurt by the explosion in single parenthood and fatherless is typically the Asian community. But in white, black, Hispanic, almost every issue that we are um, 
looking at to resolve in terms of crime, poverty, dysfunctional behavior, just as you showed in the video, there's a deep uh, correlation to explosion in single parenthood very early. But here's the thing. When you say public policy, you know, there's a new book out right now uh, by Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution, who's a colleague and a friend. But his, his book is called Of Boys and Men, where he goes into detail about all the issues facing young boys. And one of his central conclusions, though, because he talks about the rate of fatherlessness. And so he, he writes about it. But his solution is basically, you know what? There's nothing we can do about it. Marriage is dead. So let's just have young boys focus on being fathers and not marriage, right? Mm. It's like the the Jacob Blake's, um, he focused on fatherhood for a little bit and then became another father even before his first son was born. So these are the kind of narratives now that are just so destructive that this is why we see across generation, this perpetual sort of who needs a father, mm. you know? and. You know, even Naomi Osaka, who just announced her pregnancy at age 25, in her announcement, not literally a single mention of a man or marriage. Literally. No. Anyone watching this will be like, wow, good for you, Naomi. I guess you're totally fine to do this on your own. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know for the Richard Reeves book, which, again, a lot of it I liked. But, you know, as a as a Brookings scholar, he's obligated in the conclusion to provide a set of clever technocratic solutions. And and like the best he can come up with is red shirting boys in school. Right. <laughs> right. Which is probably probably correct. Like I, I can understand maybe there's some neurobiological justification for that. But the idea that a solution, something like that is anywhere close to addressing what is a profound spiritual epidemic is insane right it's completely insane the only yep. way that the only place that i take a little bit of hope is just the explosion of these figures um in like podcasts and alternative media of guys that are it's it, the kind of the new masculinity obviously joe rogan is the alpha of this jordan peterson is an alpha of this but an essential part of their package the, the, of the script that they're trying to give their audience about how to be a good man is about being a devoted father and a dev and a devoted husband. That's husband, always right. part father of it. Father and husband, right. Right, exactly. like Rogan or Peterson or Jocko Willink or any of these guys, all of them, it's not just father, it's also be a good husband. And I, I, I could just, I mean, there is there is an enormous, this is maybe off topic and boring, but- No, no, no. There's an enormous like lack of advice and wisdom about how to be a good husband in the broader culture, maybe outside of traditional religious institutions, which maybe like maybe you just got to turn to those even if you're effectively an atheist like me. But there's not a, it's you know it's not as if it's you know like you're seven years deep into a marriage and you have a couple kids and it and like your life just seems to be an endless uh, uh, endless uh, line of like changing diapers and trying to strap kids into their you know, car seats. And you're like, wow, this is really, really, this is really, really difficult. I haven't been able to golf in a couple of years. What do I do? <laughs> like, what do you do? Like, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And I mean, it's, it's there's not a lot of wisdom yeah. providing institutions in those circumstances. And also just because of like the shattering 
of multi-generational family units where a lot of people are kind of living in isolation. There aren't the elders you can turn to anymore that you normally would have turned to just a couple hundred years ago, you know? And so there's no uncles, there's no dads, there's no grandfathers that you can be like, yo, man, I'm a little worn out. And uh, I'd like to get to the gym eventually. Like, what do I do? Like, do I just suffer indefinitely? And and I think that the kind of podcasts and alternative media are serving as a are kind of filling that void, mm-hmm. and that there's that huge, cons- like customer appetite for that kind of wisdom. No, yeah, that's Peterson's twelve rules right there. Yeah, you're right. Public policy can't solve that. I don't think. I mean, I don't. I don't get the sense that it, it can. Yeah, and maybe that's, and, and but also, and there's also no neat partisan victory points to be won. It's like you, st- you know, you can't, <laughs> and uh, which obviously you know fits in with the doc. Given that we kind of explode some Fox News narratives surrounding Kyle Rittenhouse, like it's an equal, you know, this is a, a thoroughly bipartisan phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this has been a really great conversation. We thank you, Rob Mons, for joining us, and we encourage everyone to watch the documentary uh, on YouTube or wherever wherever they can they can get it. Where, is it other places besides YouTube? So it's. I mean, this is kind of long. It's it's on YouTube, but okay. it actually got. You know how we're learning from the Twitter files, that the ways that ideology can kind of creep into and morph the means of distribution. Yeah, that happens on YouTube and it happens in kind of weird, subtle, sometimes innovative ways. And again, I'm not impugning the motives of the good people of Google. I'm not saying that. But what happened to the doc actually is it got this thing called age restricted, which sounds like pretty anodyne, but it actually makes it much harder for people to watch it. They have to be able to sign in to watch it and you can embed it. It limits the ability for you to get an audience for it. All of which is to say, if people have a YouTube account or a Google account, they can 100% watch it, okay. but there's ways in which the distribution is a little bit clamped down that we're working. Okay, well, it's called yeah. the Broken Boys of Kenosha, and we trust that you will find it. It's definitely worth your time. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley, and I'm Ian Rowe. Rob, thank you for doing this, man. Very important. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 